0: Midnight in Karachi with Mavish Murad on tour.com. My guest today is the writer Sophia Samatar, whose first novel, A Stranger in Olandria*. Am I pronouncing that correctly, Sophia? Yes. I am. All right. Won both the uh, British Fantasy Award and the World Fantasy Award in 2014. She's a prolific short story writer, poet, and nonfiction and poetry editor of Interfictions. Sophia's new novel is The Winged Histories*, published by Small Bear Press. It's a fantastic book about four women, a soldier, a scholar, a poet, a socialite, all of whom are caught up in a violent rebellion and a struggle to make history in every way that they can. Sophia, welcome to Midnight in Karachi.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for
0: having me. Now, The Winged Histories is being called, I believe, a companion novel to Stranger in Elondria. What do you see as the difference between a companion novel and a direct sequel?
1: Um, Thank you for that question. I love the phrase, companion novel, which I think Gavin actually came up with that, Gavin Grant of Small Beer Press. I think so. Although maybe I said it first, I'm not sure. Um, but in any case, I really love it because it suggests that the two books belong together, but that it they stand alone. Each one stands on its own. So you don't have to read A Stranger in a laundria in order to jump into the Winged Histories.
0: So will you tell us a little bit about where both of them came from? Was there an initial premise for one or the other, an image or a character you started with? Yeah,
1: so with A Stranger in Alondria, um, that one is really a ghost story. So um, it begins, the image for me was um, of this young person who is traveling in a foreign country and who is haunted by home. So that haunting takes the form of this ghost of a young woman who follows him. Um, For the winged histories, uh, first of all, I really wanted to write about Alondrian women because a stranger in Alondria was from the perspective of a male character, most of the book, um, and a foreigner to Alondria. He wasn't from there. So I wanted to do two things in the second book, and that was um, get into what it's like to be a Laundrian, and also get into women's experience. So that's where that one started.
0: Was your writing process for The Winged Histories very different from that of Stranger and Laundria? I know Stranger and Laundria took quite a while to come together, Mm -hmm. didn't it?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, the writing process for The Winged Histories was pretty much the same, um, because what happened was that I, so I wrote the first draft of A Stranger and Laundria between like, 1998 and 2000. And then immediately after writing it, and it was a mess. um, Before revising, I went ahead and wrote the first draft of the Winged History. So I wrote this book between like 2001 and 2003, um, which obviously is quite a long time ago. So um, then I had to go and revise a Stranger in Alandria, which took like 10 years on and off. And then I also had to revise The Winged Histories because it was also a mess. So, so I felt like after I revised A Stranger in Alandria, I really understood how to put a novel together, which was not something I knew when I wrote it. I just kind of wandered around in it. And I, part of me wishes that I had revised it first and then written um, The Winged Histories after that, because it probably wouldn't have been um, you know so such a sort of, uh, well, disastrous first draft, <laughs> but I didn't do that. So what you have then is um, almost 20 years later, both books are now out in the world.
0: Is that exciting? Does it giving you kind of a, an empty nest syndrome or have you already moved on?
1: It's very exciting. It's very exciting. I love these books. Um, this, this is, you know, um, it's a big chunk of my life, this project. Um, I have moved on though. So I'm not, I, you know, I'm not sad about not working on Alondria stories right now because I'm writing a new book.
0: Are there more stories in this world that you want to tell?
1: never say never (laughs) it's 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 but you won't say yes either yeah it's absolutely possible um i could imagine that happening but i don't have any immediate plans right now um and in fact from the beginning i always saw the alondria project as a two book project so it feels complete to me
0: so you have to go out this weekend and you have to go somewhere where you're not going to be very comfortable and you need to take a plus one. It has to be one of the characters from one of your books. Who would it be?
1: Oh, first one that comes to mind is um, Tialan. And Tialan is actually a character who appears in both books. Again, like I said, they, you know, they're not... The Winged Histories isn't exactly a sequel, but Tialan is a minor character in A Stranger in a Londria who becomes a major character in um, The Winged Histories. And she's a scholar. She's very bookish. She's very geeky in Alondrian terms, I guess you could say. Um, And she's very lonely and she needs friends. I would I would definitely take her out.
0: All right. Now, you've moved around quite a bit personally, I believe, living in different places, both in and out of the U.S., Um, How much of that early travel, that exposure to new places plays out in your work, in your writing?
1: Um, It's all over my writing. I, um, so A Stranger in Alondria, the first draft was written in South Sudan. And then I revised it uh, when I was living in Egypt. And before writing it, I'd actually traveled around Southern Europe for about two and a half months. So um, Spain, Portugal, Italy... Uh, Greece and Turkey. So all of those experiences went into A Stranger in Alondria. And then The Winged Histories was written and mm, a, a lot of the the first revisions um, were done when I was living in Egypt because I was there for about nine years. So a lot of the Alondria project was written there. Um, and yeah, a huge influence in terms of the landscapes of Alondria and of the tea islands which figure into the first book um, in terms of the weather the light the you know fruits and vegetables that are available um, all of that.
0: So as a child or even as a teenager when you sort of relocated with your family um, if you did that and was that Sort of what was your access to literature like did you you know what did you read and of course, tastes evolve as we all grow older? but have yours changed hugely since then in reading material? I think
1: hmm that's it's actually hard for me to say how much my reading tastes have changed. I mean, obviously, I wasn't reading Proust when I was five years old, so right. <laughs> I mean there's there's a change in terms of how complicated the work is. But, um,
0: but when you're a teenager, I feel like you kind of get on the same. Very often, I feel like you get on the path that you're going to be as a reader when yeah. you're an adult. That's Yeah.
1: And I, I would say if I think about as a teenager, that's definitely true of me. Because it was when I was about 15 that I transitioned. I had been a, a passionate um, reader of fantasy um, as I still am but I kind of took a break because when I was 15 I had this feeling like I've read everything that's good in fantasy and everything all, everything else is just awful and I can't do it anymore and I quit you know because young people are natural extremists so right. it was, first it was like I only read this and it was like I'm never going to read this again um, and then I started reading um, sort of modernists. So um, Virginia Woolf, Faulkner, Joyce, um, these became really important writers for me. Uh, and I think that my work as it is now is kind of, it's a combination of those two things.
0: Now, I know you speak multiple languages, and I'm going to assume that you grew up simultaneously speaking at least two no i
1: actually didn't i you grew didn't. up in an english-speaking household english was our family language yeah i spoke english at home now i knew okay i knew a little bit of somali i still do but very very little so you know i knew how to greet people or if my parents wanted to say something embarrassing in the airport, like talk about the bathroom, then they'd use like the Somali word for bathroom, or they'd use the Somali word for underwear if they were right. being secretive. <laughs> but but I didn't I didn't I didn't have the the language. I didn't um, I wasn't able to carry on a full conversation, and I still can't. Um, but I did I was able to kind of pronounce it okay, and there are. Um, a lot of sounds that are shared between Somali and Arabic. And so then later when I was in school, when I was in graduate school, actually was when I started studying Arabic and I, I found it, it felt like a welcoming language to me. I didn't find it um, alienating or, or particularly hard. Obviously it's a very complex and difficult language, but, um, but I felt as if it welcomed me. Now I, did speak Swahili when I was a kid, but only for about a year. So I lived in Tanzania for about a year when I was five years old, um, and apparently, you know, spoke fluent Swahili. But then we moved from there to London, and I forgot it completely. Um, I did study it later as well in graduate school, and I don't know. I guess I'm, I would be an interesting person for you know somebody to do a study on of people who know a language as children forget it and then learn it again as adults it also came to me really quickly but I never felt like it was coming back I never felt like I remembered it I just felt like it was you know it just felt natural to speak it
0: so what made you go back and start or not go back but what made you start learning Arabic
1: well I started learning Arabic because so I I went to graduate school um at the Department of African Languages and Literature in Madison, Wisconsin, the University of Wisconsin. And I started out because I was interested in East Africa because of my own background and the East African language that they offered was Swahili. So I started as a Swahili major. And then I wanted to read classical Swahili poetry, which is written with Arabic script. So I wanted to learn, I wanted to take just a little bit of Arabic, just enough to sort of get the alphabet so that I could read this old Swahili poetry. And then I took Arabic and I, fell in love with it, and I was like, oh no, this is what I want to do. Um, but I also was really hating grad school at that point, so I quit and left, and that's when I went to Sudan and Egypt and lived in those places for about 12 years. And then I came back to graduate school to the same department, but this time as an Arabic major. And so I graduated, um, I, so I got my PhD with an emphasis on Arabic literature then.
0: So you obviously think in English. Mm-hmm. And you write in English. Have you... Yes, I do. Yeah, have you considered translating your own work? Would you like your work translated into sort of, you know, Arabic?
1: I would love that. I mean, I I love translation. There you know, few things are as exciting to me as, as having my work translated into other languages. I would love to see my work translated into Arabic. Um, I have huge respect for translators and that process because it is backbreaking and there is not nearly enough. I mean, these people, you know, they should get so much money and we should all be praising translators all day, but we don't. And sometimes, you know, they don't even get mentioned, um, which is really sad. When we talk about books, we often forget to talk about the translator. So would I translate myself? I just why 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 it's so painful and the rewards are so slim i think unless you are really obsessive and really have a passion for it um it doesn't make sense to translate it's just so hard and so i every once in a while not translating my own work because i think that would just be head-breaking but every once in a while i i think about oh you know there's there's so much great work in Arabic that's not translated into English. And so once in a while, this really outrageous thought crosses my mind of, what if I would, you know, translate something? And then I, I crush it immediately.
0: What about writing directly in Arabic?
1: Oh no, I wouldn't be good enough.
0: (laughs) Mm -mm. No, You decided this already?
1: Oh yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not steeped in it enough. And I don't, read, I don't read enough in Arabic. I, I, I'm pretty lazy that way. So I can read, but it takes me a long time. So a book that I, a book, if, if it were in English, I'd read it in a day. In Arabic, it would take me three days to read that much. And I just, I want to read faster so i do read in translation if it's available i will read in arabic if there's something i want to read that's not translated same goes for french if it's not available and i really want to read it okay but otherwise i'm too lazy
0: so writing fantasy that isn't, you know, the standard Eurocentric, Eurocentric fantasy that the world is more familiar with, I know that's a broad blanket statement, but let's just go with it for a second. Uh, but having grown up with reading stories like that, I mean, with someone like Tolkien, for example, is moving against that status quo, does it ever feel like a constant swim upstream?
1: Um, I think... It would if I were thinking about that while I was writing, but in you know framing my work, I think my work is very much um, written against some of the tropes or the conventions of epic fantasy, and one of them is this obsession with medieval Europe. Certainly, I I feel that I'm writing against that, but. Um, but that's how I think about the work when I'm looking at it after it's already been written. When I'm writing, there's just so much pleasure in moving around in your own made-up world that that you've, you've come up with it, so you can make it be anything you want. All the street names, all the foods, um, all the clothing styles, everything, you're just making it up. And that um, is such a pleasure that nothing about it feels difficult. And I don't feel at the, those moments, I don't feel uh, Tolkien, for example, and I'm a huge Tolkien fan, I don't feel that Tolkien is sort of this, like, bad father who's leaning over my shoulder, like, oh, you know, I came before you and now right. you're going against me. I feel like he's more of a, um, you know, more of a kind of companion. I don't, I don't, I I feel like, um, I feel the similarities of our projects and I just feel happy. Of course then when I look at what I've written I see that um, that it is counter to his work in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah so leaving aside Tolkien who would you say uh, most of sort of your biggest influences when it comes to your particular writing are? At least your long-form writing?
1: Yeah I would say um, Ursula Le Guin, Mervyn Peake, um Marcel Proust, um, I think those are really big ones and, yeah. and Rilke poetry of Rilke
0: what about your short stories would you say you have any clear influences on those I'm a big fan of your short stories I have to say let me just well,
1: thank you um, so okay um, Karen Joy Fowler I feel like I actually feel like reading Karen Joy Fowler's stories um, taught me how to write short stories in an important way so my first the first story that I wrote that I really really liked a lot was um Selkie Stories are for Losers.
0: Yeah, I love that. Thank
1: you. Um I which really is in did. Strange Horizons. Yeah.
0: And and That was the that did you say was, it was the first story, short story you wrote?
1: No, it wasn't the first short story I wrote, but, but the it first that you loved. Just a couple. Well, I'd actually written a lot because most of them were really terrible and have right. never been published anywhere. And I'm very, you know, I'm just incredibly grateful to the editors who rejected those stories because it would just be terrible if they were out in the world. Um, they're really, really bad. But I had written a couple that were that were, you know, decent and had been published a couple different places um, and i still like those those stories i think um a brief history of non-duality studies that came out at expanded horizons um that was before selkie stories and i i liked that one a lot and then a uh, one called the nazar which was at um idiomancer right but selkie stories was when i was like okay i think maybe i know how to do this and that um was very influenced by Karen Joy Fowler's story, King Rat, which I love. And I read it again and again, and I kind of pulled it apart and was looking at, how is this thing put together? And then looking at the mess that was then Selkie stories are for losers. And well, how have I put this together? And how can I switch this around? And how can I make it work? Um, Yeah. And now I forgot your question, because I got so excited. Oh, it was about influences. Oh, good. I'm answering it, Karen Joy Fowler. (laughs) huge one, Um, Uh Kelly Link, um, Nalo Hopkinson, I love Nalo's work, Uh, Octavia Butler, who else for short fiction, Um, I like Jeff Vandermeer's short stories a lot, Um, and actually the anthology The Weird, which um, Anne Vandermeer and Jeff Vandermeer um, edited, I, I teach that. So I I have a class I teach called Weird World Fiction, which is one of my favorite classes to teach, and I use that book as our our textbook. So I'm always rereading the stories that are in there and they're just great. They're amazing. And so that, that book I think as a whole has been an influence on my short fiction.
0: How does the teaching and the writing work out together? Is it different energies used up? Does one sort of drain the other ever?
1: Well... Yes, in terms of just time, just the amount of time that teaching takes and the amount of time that my job takes. And you sort of get pretty tired at the end of the day. Um, So in that sense, maybe it's draining, but it's also energizing because, well, I always say that, you know, I became... um, An English professor, because, well, for two reasons. One, because I want people to take my book recommendations. I just want people to read what I tell them. And now I'm in a position where they still don't always read what I tell them, but a lot of them do. So that's one of the reasons. And the other reason is that I want to make my life as much as possible like a giant book club. And I've achieved that to some extent. So, you know, we go into class and we're talking about literature and we're talking about books and pulling them apart and analyzing them. And that is definitely helpful to me as a writer.
0: Is there any particular story that you've written that was you know harder to write than the rest? Not to suggest that writing is easy, but uh, Mm. I assume that some of them are easier to write than others.
1: Yeah. um, Again, I would go back and say selkie stories are for losers and that's how you can tell i think that you're really learning you're really you know you're really changing and being transformed as an artist when something is just so hard and it's like i can't you know you keep putting it aside like i can't do this i can't and it's true you really can't and then you go back to it and then eventually um eventually you can and once you've done it then I think, you know, there are two things that happen. One is that you've kind of internalized all that hard work and it's there for you to draw on. And the other is that you then have the confidence because you've done it once. So, you know, you can do it again. But that was, I I think that was the, the story that was most difficult for me to write.
0: So then it must have felt all the better when you had the Hugo nomination for it.
1: Yes. Yeah. That was unexpected.
0: So what's the most important lesson that you've learned from someone else's writing mistake?
1: Someone else's writing mistake? Mm. That's an interesting one. Um, First, I have to think of a mistake that somebody made that I'm going to go on this podcast and <laughs> talk
0: about. So let me figure that one out. You can out. leave names out and just, you know, be vague about, well, no. <laughs> I'd rather you didn't, but, you know, it's up to you.
1: Um, what are writing mistakes? I I think I'm having trouble partly because I, I feel like, you know, there are things that I... There's writing that I love. There's writing that I don't love so much that doesn't work for me. But... If it doesn't work for me, is that because somebody made a mistake? Or is that just because they weren't trying to write a book for me, you know? Um, so when I think about writing that doesn't appeal to me, I don't know if, if it's because the writers made mistakes. I think they um, they intended to do what they did, and I just don't happen to like it. You know what I'm saying?
0: Right. No, I understand that, but then there are sometimes I do feel that there is such a thing as just bad writing, right? There is. I mean, let, let's let's not let's not pretend that it's just. It's not always just. It, it can sometimes be an objective judgment. Sometimes there is just bad writing.
1: But is it bad by mistake?
0: No. Is it a mistake oh, that's is is bad with some well, oh god no I really hope not sometimes I do feel that there's some something I read and it's so bad that I feel like this was a mistake that it exists you know writing it was a mistake <laughs> some things shouldn't just be written some people just shouldn't be writing and yet it's out there
1: I don't know I don't know I have trouble with that I have trouble with the idea that some people shouldn't be writing
0: really? I just
1: feel like everyone should be
0: writing fine I let's really put it do. I'm not sure if everyone should be published I'm not sure I should be reading everything maybe that's the real point here
1: okay you know you definitely shouldn't (laughs) yeah that's Hmm. the point
0: here all right let me change that question around
1: you definitely shouldn't be reading
0: everything (laughs) let me change that question around what's the most important lesson you've learned from one of your own writing mistakes because you know when you've made some a mistake or when you've done something wrong you know
1: yeah okay so let's try this um Obviously I'm really bad at talking about craft. I'm always bad at answering craft questions. But let's 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 do this. So here's something that I think about and that I thought about when I was having one of the biggest problems I had writing A Stranger in a Laundria, which is I am pretty sure chapter 7. I'm not sure if it's chapter 7, but it's it's the chapter where in A Stranger in a Landria Devik has been having this lovely life and he's traveling and then he gets haunted by the ghost. So the whole tone of the thing has to change from like a happy kind of tourist mode to like, you know, incredibly disturbed, um, haunted mode. And I had so much trouble with that transition and I wrote it. I don't know how many times I wrote it. I mean, you know, more than 10 times. Um, and then I was reading um The English Patient by Michael Ondaatje, which I've read several times. Like it a
0: lot. I love his writing.
1: And so there's Have you read that book?
0: Absolutely. I studied it in school. Uh, okay. Many many go. years ago, so, many 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 years ago, but yes.
1: Okay. So you remember there's this whole like bomb disposal thing where they're, you know, they they have to um um take care of these bombs during the war. And there's they're always, you know, the Germans are always coming up with new kinds of bombs um, and then they have to figure them out and it's very dangerous because it might blow up in their face. And at one point, one character, they're trying to defuse this bomb and one character says to another, if you're in a room with a problem, don't talk to it. And that gives another character the solution for how to defuse this thing. And he says, okay, so there's this one piece of the mechanism that we've been focusing on that we've got to take care of. Let's not pay attention to that piece at all and just work around it. And that turns out to be the answer. So this phrase, if you're in a room with a problem, don't talk to it has become, um, I kind of appropriated that for thinking about writing. And it's become really important to me that if you if there's this one thing that you can't write this one section and you keep writing it. Just don't, skip it. Don't talk to it. Skip over it, do everything else. And um, when you come back to it, don't obsess about getting from A to B. And this sort of comes around to your idea of maybe writing mistakes or bad writing, or at least writing that seriously doesn't appeal to me is writing that feels too plotted. Like you can feel that the author is like, Ugh, this character is in Chicago and it has to get to New York, and so then they like tell you about every spot along the way and what time it was, and it's really boring because the character is just supposed to be in New York doing what's going to happen in New York. That's um,
0: that's how it works. Yeah, with hyperrealism so too, as stuff. well. Yeah, yeah. Some of the stuff that annoys me is when I mean, with hyperrealism as well, is there's lots and lots and lots of little detail about everything. Um, and I know that it, some people think it works if the writing is beautiful enough, but I still get bored, I have to admit.
1: Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed that you like my writing, because I, no. like I, <laughs> I feel like you do that actually. Do you? I don't think it's, it's <laughs> especially in the, in the novels, I feel like. No, I don't um, think you do. It's been, it's been a complaint of readers. Well, it's, actually, I'm actually agree
0: with that you that if like, it's like...
1: Uh, why is she telling us no. about every deal. Uh,
0: but I do think that the stuff that you tell helps move the story along. I have this like Hitchcockian view about it, right? If it's not moving the story along, just let's ax it. Um, so I, I don't think you do that. But I think there are a lot of, and I'm again using a sort of a generic, general sort of blanket statement here, but a lot of literary writers who do do that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then it tends to bore me also because, well, also if if the, if the it's about, you know, a bunch of middle class white people being depressed, then yeah, everything <laughs> Like a lot of literary novels end up, yeah, it's just, you know, it's just just endless. It's just never, it's just, uh, I feel like that's really, um, there's a lot of, there are a lot of books out there like that. I really shouldn't read everything.
1: Yeah, no. Coming back to that. there's not enough time. And eventually, you know, you're going to run out of time. So take it seriously. Um, that was grim. I I, I May you have a long life. No, but, you know, it we're wasn't all, grim. We're but are sure. going to run out
0: of time. You're absolutely we're right. We're, run we're born running out of time. I agree with you completely. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm slowly coming to that conclusion as well, that if I can't finish a book, I should just let it go. Do you do that ever? Do you let books go when you can't finish them? Or are you one of those people who says, no, I will finish this because I started and I must in order to have a complete opinion about it?
1: lot of trouble setting books aside so I need to be very careful about what books I pick up I can there have there are books I haven't finished but very very few and most of them I'm planning to go back and finish them at some point I just yeah I am definitely one of those people where if I start it mm -hmm, I'm probably going to finish it
0: then how do you choose
1: um okay oh my my list is so long of course like yours i'm sure like everyone's um i choose it's mostly it's mostly word of mouth either word of mouth or word of blog so you know either somebody a friend somebody whose um taste i respect has told me you've got to read this book or somebody says oh you know knowing what you write you should read this person um that's one way and then yeah, looking at um, at blogs, at things that at, at tweets, at you know people tweeting reviews of things, just things that kind of drift across my radar and look appealing. Um, but especially when they come from people that I know, um, whether I know those people personally or whether they're um, writers or bloggers that I know, we kind of have similar tastes. So, so that's that's how I get most of my my reading material.
0: So what's next for you? What's new that you're excited about? Your work, someone else's work?
1: Well, in terms of someone else's work, someone I'm really excited about right now, well, there's a number of people. Um, Kai Ashante Wilson, um, who just won the Crawford Award, right. um, is, I think, an amazing, amazing writer, really striking writer, and somebody that, yeah, I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to seeing more of that kind of work. Rose Lemberg is amazing and has been for a long time, both as a writer and as an editor. And um, she currently has a story that has been nominated for a Nebula Award. So, and it's a great story. I think that's super exciting. In terms of my own work, well, I'm excited about the book that I'm writing, which I have close to half of a first draft which you know what that means for me it's like in 10 years maybe we'll see this book (laughs) Um, but um, it's it's a sort of in some ways it's a departure from what I have been doing because it's not um, it's not genre fiction it's kind of um, it's a hybrid text so it includes history, fiction, criticism, and memoir. And it's based on a historical event, event, which is a trek of Mennonites from southern Russia to what is now Uzbekistan in the 1880s.
0: That's very intriguing. I please, think so. Please don't take 10 years. I'm super years.
1: excited about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, please don't take 10 what? years. Don't take 10 years. Oh,
1: I, you know what? I really don't want to. And I, you know, when you talk about, um, we were talking about detail and skipping over things both A Stranger in Alandria and The Winged Histories were twice as long in the draft form. A Stranger in Alandria was almost exactly twice the size. The Winged Histories I'm afraid I'm actually afraid to check I'm afraid to know how many words I wrote in order to get this book but it was uh, definitely more than twice as long um, and I just that process Maybe it's, I, I think the results are fine, but the process is really, really grueling. And I hope that I've learned enough from revising those two books that this next book goes faster.
0: Are you writing any short stories along the way that we're looking out for?
1: I am writing short stories. Um, I'm actually writing a short story right now. It's a, it's a great way to kind of take a break from the larger project. Um, a nice form of procrastination, you might say, that actually gives you something at the end of it. So whenever the book is bogging me down or I just can't look at it anymore, then I'll go and write a short story. So in terms of stuff that's coming up, I have, um, there's a, an anthology, a fairy tale anthology that's coming out called The Starlit Wood and I have a fairy tale in there Um, and other stuff other stuff is either like I can't talk about it yet or I'm actually I haven't finished writing it Um, but I am I am supposed to have a short story collection actually that's supposed to come out next year and you notice I keep saying supposed to
0: yes I was wondering
1: (laughs) yeah We'll see what happens. It depends if I can meet certain deadlines, which I hope I can. Then um, we should see a collection next year from Small Beer Press, which will include some stories no one has read
0: before. Fantastic. And what we do know for sure is the Winged Histories is now out.
1: That's right. The official release date is March 15th.
0: Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today.
1: Thank you. This was a great conversation.